Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Seth. And I'm Ross. Although you guys gave me an opportunity to say I can introduce myself any way I wanted. I was really tempted to say, hi, I'm Fernando Alonso, but uh, yes. I don't think anybody <laughs> would believe me. So, One of the few places I would want to be in an F1 grid is trying to get past Alonso when I'm in a hurry. Because that, would, that guy seems uh, hard to pass. I don't think it would happen. No. Well, especially, <laughs> so not to take anything away from you, but no. uh, it's just a statement on Alonzo's racecraft. Good Lord. I mean, all right. First of all, we're track walking. Hi. Um, Hi. <laughs> but second of all, the fact that he was able to keep Hamilton behind him for as long as he did, I forget where they were at. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, he is special. Um, always has been, always will be. And and what I'd love to see this year is uh, how much fun he looks like he's having. You don't see Formula One drivers having fun all the time. And yeah. Alonzo looks like he's just having fun. Nice. Yeah, that's part of the reason why I like uh, Ricardo is he's just He's just bubbly, like most of the time. I mean, you can definitely see when he's having a bad day and stuff like that. But he's just, just having a good time. I don't know. I, I agree. If there was anybody in the F one grid that I'd like to spend some time with, it'd be Ricardo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially just, in, in Austin, he seems to turn it up to eleven whenever he's in Texas. Almost, almost like to a state of being total goof. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's that's beyond yeah yeah for sure. There's not enough of that in Formula One these days, no. though. Really, is I'm sad Kimmy's going away for almost the opposite reason. Yeah, I they you almost can't market a guy like Kimmy anymore, and you have to market so well now. It seems like, and God, he's just his his interviews are just hilarious to me. As you were saying that, I was I was thinking. Wouldn't it be interesting if they tried to have him on as a color commentator for the F1 races? <laughs> I, I don't think he'd say anything. So, but when he did, it would be so brilliant. <laughs> oh, looks like he crashed. And that's it. Yeah, yeah, you just need him as the third man in the booth to just like yeah. three or four times during the race, make a comment out of nowhere and just have the other commentators decide what to do with it. Oh, yeah. yeah. World champion Kimi Raikkonen's in the booth, by the way. <laughs> Has been for the past two hours. Yeah. You haven't heard him say anything, but he's been here. <laughs> he's drinking. Um, yeah. So, Ross, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Um, uh, my pleasure. Should be fun. We... I actually got to meet you in person earlier this year on the One Lap of America. And maybe that's a good place to start because I have a confession and I want to see how it went over with you because one of my oh crap moments was I I look up to you as a kind of coaching guru, like somebody I try to learn from in coaching and how to be a better coach, things like that. So we were in line for that noodle truck at AMP, hmm. which were amazing noodles, by the way. And yep. we're standing around in a circle, just kind of talking. And I was just, I had just come off track having driven there for the first time in the Miata and just had a ball. And I remember proclaiming quite loudly this track fucks 
and looking at you and instantly feeling regret because I feel like I just punched your dog or something like that because I cussed in front of you. So first of all, I apologize. Yeah. You know, that was the first time I'd ever heard that word. Oh God. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. First time. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know about Santa Claus too? No, what? Okay. What, what, what should I? <laughs> so Ross, yeah. well, what do you do? <laughs> um, so you are, you kind of have a lot of pots on the fire, so to speak. You do quite a few things. Um, you do the Speed Secrets podcast, a bit of a hiatus right now. You do the Speed Secrets weekly. You write books. You do a lot of coaching on site. And I'm sure other things we don't know about. What what fills a month for you? What does that look like? Wow, uh, a, a lot of time on airplanes. Yeah, airplane rides. Yeah, because <clears throat> so I, I have a coaching client now who is just uh, an awesome guy. He's uh, a gentleman driver that. Uh, the first time he drove, I drove on a racetrack was three years ago, and now he's racing an IMSA in an LMP2 car. And, you know, he took the pole at Sebring and Watkins Glen this year. He won the six-hour race uh, in his third season of racing. And he's an absolute delight to work with, but he keeps me busy. And we go to, we're at a track a lot. And when we're not at a track, we do a lot of sim training. He has a simulator, a motion, full motion simulator nice. at his home. Uh, fortunately, we've got it set up so that I can, um, so I can see his screen plus real time live telemetry of brake and throttle and steering traces and predictive lap times and tire pressures and the whole bit, everything. Plus, I've got a camera set up so that it's pointing at his feet, another camera pointing over his shoulder at his hands. And we do a lot of work on the simulator that way. So prior to, for example, going to Petit Le Mans, uh, you know, we would spend, we would run practically every scenario you can imagine from an hour straight of him driving out of pit lane and immediately back into pit lane, out of pit lane, back into pit lane. He knew how to get in and out of pit lane faster and better than anybody else. we would do things with, I would mess up the setup and make the car super loose. And then I'd make it very pushy understeery. And then, uh, you know, we'd practice fuel save modes where he'd have to lift before braking. Anyways, so we'd run every scenario you can imagine, including simulated qualifying and long runs on full fuel and all that kind of stuff. So when I'm not traveling with him, I'm spending a lot of time prepping him for the next, uh, the next event through on the simulator um and uh and and you know the writing that i get to do whether it's for my speed secrets weekly or my next whatever i'm writing uh most of that happens on airplanes um i i'm i i have this love hate relationship with travel these days i'm so sick of of airports and hotels and things like that but once i get in my seat in the plane and i get my laptop open uh with my noise canceling earpieces in that I, so I don't have to listen to anybody around me, then I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a happy place there. Mm. Nobody can bug me then. Yeah. I remember you, you describing that you get paid to travel and you can coach and drive a little bit on the free side. Yes. Yes. And, 
you know, it's interesting when you tell people where you're going and what you're doing and stuff like that. And people look at that, oh, it's going to be the greatest thing in the world. You get to go here, you get to go there. And yeah, I know where the hotel is. I know where the airport is and I know where the racetrack is. And, um, right. and, and I'm not complaining because a few years ago, was that um, 2018, I think, did the European Le Mans series. Uh, and arranged it so that usually, well, pretty well every city, every track we went to, I would take one day on the end of the trip and just go and explore. Like, you know, I after the weekend, get up Monday morning at seven o'clock in the morning and spend a day walking from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. in Vienna or Prague or, you know, something like that. So yeah. um, that's not a bad thing to do. Yeah, that's that's always one thing on the one lap of America. It's always so frenetic. Um, you know, all you see is gas stations, maybe fast food and a hotel and a paddock and not much of the paddock because (laughs) the time between runs is really quite short for what it is. So how often have you done the one lap? Was that many times or first time or for you? So this was my third time that I've, we've entered and completed it. Seth, okay. though, I've done it five. Yeah, no. so you're slightly sicker than the rest of us. Yeah, and well, the only sure. reason I missed last year was uh, because I didn't sign up for the year prior because I had a daughter graduating high school that week, and I was trying to be a good father, like all my efforts into being a good dad. And then, of course, that like everything got canceled. Um, the graduation got canceled, and one lot got canceled. But by that point, the the list the waiting list was so long, there was no way to get in it for last year. So, um, but I will be there this year. Well, I have to say, I mean, it was a, it was an awesome experience. It was my first. And uh, in fact, it was because of my podcast that uh, I ended up doing it. Um, I had Andy Hollis on as a, as a guest on my podcast. Yep. Uh, he got to talking about one lap and, uh, you know, throughout the, 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 the discussion on the podcast, you know, it was one of those things that was always in the back of my mind I wanted to do. But by the end of that, I must have said four times, I got to go and do that. And I think within an hour of my podcast going live, I had like three emails from people saying, hey, come and do one lap with me. Yeah. And uh, so I went and did it with Mike Martin, who was just people say to me, if, if you're going to go and do one lap, what is the most important thing that you can do? And I would say the most important thing is to have a co-driver who is as nice and as fun and as enjoyable to be around as Mike Martin. Um, yep. Mike was uh, just an awesome guy to go and, you know, he and I had never met. I show up <laughs> and we spend whatever it is, eight or nine days, that, you know, by the time you kind of go through the whole thing. It's <laughs> yeah, super risky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I talked to a couple other people during one lap and one guy, I think was on a second day, was ready to kill his co-driver. <laughs> Oh yeah. So, oh yeah. 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 I, I remember Becky and I telling, um, telling some of our friends on our first one lap, they're like, so how long have you two been together? And we'd only been dating for like two, three months at that point. And they're like, Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's great. Yeah. I can get moody if nothing else. But, uh, so what was it in that conversation with Andy that like, 
it went from like, yeah, that'd be nice to do to, I need to actually schedule this and put some effort into making it happen. Well, I think, you know, certainly just the, the fun of going to new tracks and, you know, as it turned out, uh, trying to think, I think there was, uh, there was only really two tracks that I'd had a lot of time on out of the, whatever it was, six or so that we went to. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, you know, there was a little bit of just that part of it. That's always fun to go to. Um, there was a couple of tracks like Eagles Canyon. I had never been there yet, yet. And it is now ranks up there with one of my favorite racetracks I've ever been to in my life. Like what a fun place that to was, drive. That was a good, that was a good day. Yeah. So, you know, there was that, I think there was just the, uh, I, I, I like my private time, you know, I'm, the world's biggest introvert. So I do like my private time, but I love the camaraderie and the community around tracks and people and, and that. And, uh, so as Andy talked about that part of it and how everybody's kind of works together and everything. And, uh, that was, that was, that sounded really attractive to me. Um, just a great way to meet more people. And I'm not the most outgoing person when it's in that those kinds of uh, situations, but uh, I met some just incredibly fantastic people on that event. And uh, so there was that part of it, I guess. And I don't know, some of it's just that, that um, the, the challenge of you got to learn things quickly and anything could go wrong, yeah. but you got to just keep pushing through. That, that, that part just appealed to me, I guess. And I don't know. I think if somebody says to me, cars, track, I'm convinced I'm in. Yeah. Just twist, twist my arm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the first year we were on one lap, it was pretty quickly apparent to us that just the people, you know, as much as we like playing with cars, it's cars is like, the technology we use to have good relationships. Like yeah. what, what we do has little to do with cars. It has everything to do with the people that we get to know and form good relationships with. And the one lap has some fantastic, some of the best people in it. And can I tell you one of my favorite parts of the whole event? Please. Was, you know, we'd show up early in the morning and we kind of, you know, we had that routine down by the second day, the second event where you can unpack the car in 30 seconds and start going. But uh, we kind of had a, had a routine where we get there, we'd quickly unpack, and then I would go and walk the track. I would do some track walking. Uh -huh. And uh, I love walking the track. And most of the time I'd, I'd walk it by myself. And that's, there's something special to me about connecting with a racetrack early in the morning. And, and I think, you know, the, maybe the, my favorite one was that last, uh, the, the last event, um, um, at Gingerman. And if you remember how cold it was, it was, oh, you yeah. know, there was frost on the track. So walking that's, the that's track. That's our home track. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just, it was, I love that feeling of being alone on a track when it's quiet and walking around and kind of just, picturing it in my mind, what I'm going to do. 
And uh, I know I'm weird, <laughs> but no. there's something just real special about doing that. And to be able to do that every day for a week was, was, was just fun. One lap is the only place where I do track walks that feel like that because every, every other event I go to feels like there's, there's an event there. And, you know, so you're kind of walking a track while an event is happening. And, and that is at one lap, but the paddock is so small that it really feels like, you know, eight or 10 cars showed up and you're out walking and it feels very personal in a way that it doesn't when I tried to do track walks at, at other bigger events. Um, I know exactly what you mean. It's just, I, I have a thermos of coffee that I got at the hotel and I get out of the car and I go walk and it's always, you know, the sun's still sort of coming up and it just, yeah, they're special on, on one lap in a way that they never are elsewhere. Fortunately, I think people listening to this podcast can understand, but I'm pretty sure if we explain that to anybody else in the world, they'd look at us, go, whoa, you guys are sick. Yeah. And that's I mean, okay. I've, I've got to think like kind of our tagline is how you do anything is how you do everything. I've got to think that this has to resonate yeah. on some level, like some people's morning commute, you know, where they get into their car, they either put on a particular radio show, podcast, music with their coffee or tea or water, or whatever it is and go like, it's just, especially on the one lap, like it becomes a daily routine that yes, helps you accomplish a goal, but also helps you connect and ground yourself to where you are because we're in a different state every single damn day. Like it's hard to remember like where you are, what you're doing, but it's like the track walk, which is what this show is named after because Seth and I met on the one lap doing track walking and but it just helps you remind me oh yeah i'm in this state i'm at this track the weather is like this i'm feeling like this i'm didn't get quite enough sleep but here's what's going through my like it just gives you time like very few activities that we do like outside of meditation or really something like that yeah maybe this is our form of meditation I think so. Yeah. I, and I'd say that the, you know, the transits from, from uh, track to track, and that was fun. There were moments, there were some moments that you kind of look back on afterwards and go, mm, I'm not sure that was the smartest thing to do. Uh, and then there were other times where it was just, you, you know, you pull into a gas station, you've been driving and it's what a eight, nine hour you know, transit between places and you stop for gas somewhere and you're grabbing some quick food and you walk out and there's another one lapper stopped at that same gas station. Yep. Like what are the odds? And there's just that, you know, little exchange for a few minutes. Uh, that's fun. Um, if you recall that, uh, the dr our drive from new Orleans to Atlanta oh, through I the do. tornado <laughs> that's and it's a bad night for us. <laughs> Yeah. We, yeah. we had to redesign our uh, intake that night. Uh, um, yeah. And you, <laughs> we had our, our transit experiences are very different. Um, we, we don't have AC. <laughs> we don't have sound deadening. We don't have HVAC. We don't have, uh, yeah, the transits are not restful 
for us, which is going to change next year. And I'm very excited about that. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, fortunately I was with Mike in a GT3 RS, which is, you know, on one hand, a incredible car to drive on the highway as well, but it's not the softest riding and the seats no. are not meant for, they're not meant for sitting in for eight hours straight on a highway. No. Uh, but uh, yeah, that transit that night where we kind of met up with a couple of other one lappers and we're moving rapidly on the highway mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and three, three guys on, you know, crotch rocket, super bikes, whatever on the highway, we come up on them. And of course they look and go, Oh, it's playtime. Yeah. <laughs> and can't get passed by a car. Yeah. And, you know, at one point when I look out, look next to me and there's a guy doing a wheelie at over a hundred miles an hour. And I'm kind of like, this is not really smart. But then within 10 minutes, we hit that tornado rainstorm and we're literally doing 25 miles an hour on the interstate yeah. and there's branches falling down and on the highway. And I'm thinking, wow, this is, <laughs> this is, this is the fun part too, in yeah. a different way. Yeah. Yeah. That was our, and everyone's heard me tell this story at length, but that was our first really, like we had had some late nights on the one lap. This was our shortest night by far. When we woke up to get back in the car, um, the oil and water temperature had not come down to ambient yet. That's, oh. that's how little sleep we got. Um, wow. You know, which was actually AMP day. Um, yeah, and it was, and I think, yeah, so we lost an hour on that one too because we went from central to eastern time zone right so yeah yeah yeah, yeah well i think and, and i think on the last day i was counting i can't remember now but was it 14 states that we drove through something like that be michigan well indiana to and then it was memphis so we went through kentucky tennessee and then from there it was to texas so that would have been tennessee to oklahoma to texas then we went to New Nola. Orleans, so Louisiana. So Did we go, yeah. So Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana. Is that how that works? I yeah, we went those. through. Then we went through North Carolina, actually South Carolina, North Carolina. I yeah, Virginia. That sounds pretty accurate. Then up through, there was uh, and there was uh, from from Summit Point up to Gingerman. There was. Yep. I think we, we, we slipped through like five miles of a state just off the corner. I can't remember where that was Pennsylvania or any, anyways, but it yeah. was, you know, it was kind of fascinating by the end of it. You kind of go, well, we just drove through 14 states or whatever it was in a week. Um, yeah. Very, very short amount of time. Yeah. 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 So I guess two questions. One, are you planning to do it again? Not just hoping, are you planning to do it again? And two, um, it's always, I always like to ask people after the first time they do the one lap, what would your ideal car to take on the one lap? So two-parter. Uh, so I am planning on doing it again, but I, I'm at this point, I'm 95% sure that I'm planning not to do it in 2022. And the reason is, is that my coaching schedule, I, I'm, not 100%, but I'm 95% sure that it's it's going to conflict with that week. Sure. Uh, 
So I, I will do it again. Um, so the, which leads to the second part is in, you know, what I was told was this past year was one of the most competitive years ever. Yes. And by, by far, uh, you know, that I, I'm slightly competitive. In fact, I know for sure that I'm more competitive than you. In fact, I'm more competitive than anybody in the world. I mean, that just proves how competitive I am. I have to be, I have to be more competitive. So I'm competitive. And so if I'm going to go back, I want to have a shot at winning. And, uh, you know, the Mike's GT3 RS, I actually think with the right prep, we'd have a shot of for sure being in the top three. Uh, we finished ninth. Um, which is but nutty, no. which is nutty to me for, for the two of you driving that car to have come in ninth is, and there were, there were 15 different cars that came to win, not only came yeah. to do well, but came to win this year was supremely absurd. <laughs> well, and, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, oh, um, uh, the guys that finished second, um, Super K, that'd be yes. Alex Moss and Andy Smedegard. Yes. Um, they had something slightly less than 700 horsepower, I think. Yes. Yeah, that, I think they were actually running it on one of their lower horsepower tunes, which would have been somewhere around 500, I think. It's capable of more than that. But, but they, in a car that probably weighed barely 2,000 pounds, um, it basically... With a GT3 RS, we got outpowered. There was nobody in front of us that didn't have 700 horsepower other yes. than them. Yes. And, you know, like we got out horsepowered, yeah. uh, which is pretty crazy in a GT3 RS. It's yeah. just, uh, but, um, you know, I also, if, well, when I go back and do it again, I learned a lot that first year. And there's some just some fairly simple prep things that, that uh, I've learned that would give us a much better chance to do it uh, again. Um, so to, I guess to go back to your question of what would I, what would I do it in? Um, it, I would be, it would be hard to not pick something like a, the latest and greatest Porsche GT2 RS or something like that yep. because they're so reliable. They're capable of, of, you know, if somebody's going to show up with a highly modified car, it's not going to be the fastest car. But I think you, you, with a something like that, you could uh, be consistently fast enough to win overall. Sure. Uh, and if you did the right prep beforehand, and I'm not saying that we didn't do the right prep, but we didn't do enough of the right prep. So, what, ty um, what tires did you guys choose? Uh, the Cup twos, I think they were. Okay. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Sure. And, um, yeah, you know, so there's, there are things that, um, things that, that we learned and, uh, you want to share those with us or are you going to keep those <laughs> to yourself? <laughs> well, he keeps dancing around it. I, I, I know. I mean, for me, the biggest thing was, uh, I showed up, we did a couple laps at Gingerman that before the event started. And I'm in a car that's owned by somebody that I'd never met in person. We've talked a few times on the phone 
and I knew was already knew that was one of the nicest people I've ever gonna I'm ever gonna meet in my life. So I, you know, I'd say I crept up on the car's limits, and probably the single biggest thing is if if we could have gone somewhere and I had spent half a day just really really learning how to wring the neck of that car um that would have helped the second part of that is it was only the last couple of events where i was starting to get a feel for the right tire pressures and you know with three laps you know it's almost like you want to be under pressured for the first lap dead on for the second lap and over pressured for the third lap and it was really the last two events where we're starting to get that dialed into what the car needed to do that. And of course, uh, Summit Point, our second to last track, uh, I remember walking around in a t-shirt that day. Yep. And then the next day we were at Gingerman where it was frost yeah, on, the, on the track in the morning. So trying to find those right tire pressures was more important than even I would have expected. Um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a time trialer. I'm not a autocrosser. Um, you know, put me in a car and let me run a, a three-hour stint in an endurance race. That's my real sweet spot. Um, so, being fast in three laps and finding out what the car needed in those three laps, um, you know, would have taken a half a day to a day of, of tuning me in the in the tires. Yeah. So that was that was the single biggest uh, that was the single biggest prep thing that I would change. So you've done some driving in your career. You've, Once uh, or twice, yes. You've done some things. What uh, what kind of driving things have you done? Uh, well, I got my driver's license uh, just last year. Congratulations! And... That's tough. <laughs> Is that hard yeah, up in yeah. Canada? Yeah. Uh, you know, so, I mean, I grew up, well, my very first race was actually in a sprint car, super modified winged oval track stuff. I, my, my dad worked on and built those. And so I kind of grew up around oval track racing, short track, oval track racing mm. in six, 700, 700 horsepower sprint cars and super modifieds. And yeah. You know, I spent my first season doing that and then went road racing because I wanted to go road racing and race Formula Fords and Formula Atlantics and then some Trans Am stuff and finally got into Indy cars and actually I got into underfunded Indy cars and um, but learned a ton and that opened some doors and then got paid to drive in IMSA sports car racing for a bunch of years in prototypes and a season of GT and for the factory BMW team. And, um, you know, still every chance I, uh, well, I shouldn't say not every chance when I get a chance, I still love driving. I've been last few years been doing a lot of, uh, the world world racing league, WRL endurance races mm -hmm. and love that because it's, it's a nice fun atmosphere, but that series itself has gotten way, way, way more competitive. Uh, IMSA and, light it's called now. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and next year I'm going to do probably eight or nine of those races, I think. So, um, I'm looking forward to that, uh, having some fun with that. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, 
driven a little bit of uh, a little bit of everything and a lot of some things. Now you you talked about really enjoying the three hour stint, so like endurance race and you know even some indie car races are at least you know certainly more than an hour. What is it for you? about endurance racing that holds some fascination over say a short sprint i think the biggest thing is i love the 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 strategic part of it and 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 the racecraft part of it it's 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 all about setting up passes so that you get through traffic faster than everybody else does and if you are being passed if there's a faster car in the field you get passed in a way that costs you the less, the least amount of time. I know drivers who are very, very fast drivers, but when they're being passed, they lose a second. And my goal is, you know, if I if I if I lose a tenth of a second while being passed, eh, I got to do better next time. Mm-hmm. So I love that part of it. I love the strategic part of it. I love. Um, um, there's something about a long stint when you just get totally into that zone and that, you know, like it's just, it's, you're kind of on autopilot, but your mind is doing all these calculations of fuel strategy and all that other stuff that you, mostly it's left up to the team. But there are times when I'm in a, in a endurance race where I will feed back some information to the team and they'll come back later on and go, how did you know we needed that? And it's just, it's understanding that part of it, mostly just because I've been around it for so long. So, so I, I love that part of it, but I, I guess mostly um, it's the, it's the race craft, the moving pieces, the, that chessboard thing of, you know, if I make this move now, that puts me in a better position to get by that next car. And, you know, there is one other faster car that's coming up behind and going to let him just slip by there and tuck in behind and go and, you know, playing, setting up a pick, you know, to get it so that nobody else, you get by, but the other card doesn't. So all of that stuff, uh, that, that, that to me is just so much fun. Uh, to me, at the end of a endurance race, I don't care if you've turned a lap time that's faster than me, but I want my average lap times to be less than yours. Yeah. That's, that's the goal to me. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's hugely fun. That's the game. Yeah. Yeah. That in a way, that's what endurance driving is all about. Oh, and then, and then throw in one more thing is, can you do that while using less fuel and less brakes than anybody else and less tires? And, and there's a, there's a piece of driving technique there that simply, um, there, there's a way to do that, to go just as fast with using the car less. And that, that's fun. It, it was interesting to me you you talking about how being passed and passing will essentially if you can do it better than the other drivers essentially makes you faster than your competition and hearing you talk about your training techniques with your client on sim racing about how to get in and out of the pits quicker like finding these not not only the big ideas that everyone 
is hopefully working on, you know, um, where to start releasing the brake and get the car rotated here so you can, you know, get more speed at the end of the straight, that kind of stuff. But especially in endurance racing, um, something that Audi was very good at back in their heyday was who can change a transmission the quicker, the quickest, who can, who can change, um, you know, who can do a brake job faster than anybody else that thinking about the things that everybody else wasn't necessarily working on to gain a distinct advantage. Um, I, I have to think is also kind of good for the confidence coming into a race. For sure. And, you know, it's interesting you, you bring up Audi and I, I know I have friends who drove for Audi in the P1 cars and, you know, they grew up, they came up through the karting ranks and were young up and coming open wheel drivers that all left foot brake. When they got to Audi, Audi said, you have to right foot brake. Because at a place like Le Mans, right foot brakers get better fuel mileage than left foot brakers do. And at Le Mans, it can mean an extra lap on a tank of fuel. And that's huge in 24 hour race. Yeah. Yeah. Because you actually have to come off the throttle to get yeah. to the brake. So really fun, uh, quick kind of sideline story, but it was related to this in, what was that, 2005. I did, I, I was approached to coach three young drivers who were going to race at the Daytona 24-hour race in a Porsche. And they were, at the time, one of them, so this was in September, the year before, um, the three dads essentially approached me to, to do this. And one of the, well, I'd, I'd work with all three of them um, as they were coming up through carting it into cars. And one of them I'd started working with, Colin Braun, I'd started working with him when he was 12. And um, at the time in September, he was 15. Uh, one of the other guys was 15 and the other one had just turned 16. And, but they were all gonna be 16 by the time Daytona came around at the end of January. And because the rules were IMSA, you couldn't get a driver, you couldn't get a racing license um, until you were 16. So when we went, actually went to the race, only one of them actually had a driver's license. Uh, The other two were not allowed to drive on the road because they weren't licensed to drive on the road. And yet they were going to race in the Daytona 24 hour race. So this became team 16. It was called with the three 16 year olds. And then they said, well, why don't you co-drive as well? which was ironic because at the time I was 48. So if you took up, you took 16 (laughs) times three, that was my age. So, um, but we went testing and one of the days we went testing, we just worked on, we worked on fuel mileage and not using the brakes as much. So one of the things I did was ask the engineers to essentially program the dash so that, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but let's say, to, for them to turn their fastest lap time, they had to use something like 700 PSI of brake pressure. So I said, program the dash so an alarm light would come on at 600 PSI. And I would send them on track and have them practice turning laps w- without turning the alarm light on. And they got to the point with practice in a few hours where they could turn the exact same lap time, but using less than 600 PSI of brake pressure. And what that meant was if they used 700 PSI on the brakes, it was going to mean two brake pad changes in a 24-hour race. But getting them below 600 PSI meant they could make the, the brakes last for just over 12 hours, which meant one brake pad change. So little things like that. Um, 
that is huge fun. <laughs> that was just so much fun to figure out little ways like that to gain an advantage. And what was super fun was these three 16 year olds, the very first time we went testing, uh, they they made the they pointed out the fact that they had never braked with their right foot before and they had never shifted a transmission that was an age pattern <laughs> and they had never driven a car that had a top on it a roof on it <laughs> and they'd never driven a race longer than 30 minutes so this was like three two and a half three months before the race and it's like okay we got some work to do here so I remember that very first day teaching them how to how to brake with their right foot, how to use a clutch pedal, how to use an H pad, how to heel and toe. Uh, it was it was huge fun. And then for them to go there two and a half, three months later, do the twenty four hour race where we had uh, we had people in the paddock who were betting that they would never turn their headlights on, meaning they wouldn't even get the dark before crashing the car. Sure. Not only did they turn the headlights on, but they drove, the three of them drove absolutely perfectly for 24 hours. And the only reason we didn't finish on the podium was, ironically, one of the crew members who, who actually bet against them turning their headlights on, one of the pit crew on our team messed up the brake pad change and cost us about a lap during that brake pad change and that cost us a podium finish. So, so. That, that to me, but that to me is part of what makes endurance racing so cool. All, all the pieces. There's all the just, pieces. There's just more pieces. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, get, you mind if I tell one more story? Sure. Well, tell all the stories. <laughs> this I only have two, by the way, so. Um, <laughs> I don't. So this that. was uh, this was actually just a couple of years before that, uh, 2002, I guess, or something. I can't remember what year it was, but uh, I was driving a LMP2 car, a Lola Nissan LMP2 car, and um, that was that time when there was IMSA and Grand Am, and there was you know, kind of like the kart IRL days and IndyCar racing. There was two series, and it was messy and stuff. But Daytona was run by Grand Am and. At the end of the previous season, Grand Am mandated a spec wing for all prototype cars. And so we put this spec wing on this Lola LMP2 car. We went testing at Daytona and literally almost spun driving down pit lane in the car the first time. Like it was just aerodynamically so unbalanced. And we spent a, two days testing trying to get the aero balance in the car right. But it was just... It was just wrong. And at the end of the second day, we get a, an email from the, uh, some engineers at Lola in England saying, hey, we've run, the cal uh, we've run that rear wing doing CFD, computational fluid dynamics, or in a wind tunnel or something like that. And they said, do not drive the car in the track. Um, it is unstable. Cool. And we're like, uh, we know that. Cool, thanks. Yeah, thanks. A little bit late though. Anyways, we went to go to the race and we kept tuning on it, but it was, it was frightening to drive, to be honest. It was, it was, if you were completely by yourself, it was kind of okay. But if another car got within like eight car lengths of you behind you, so as you passed a car or somebody, you know, one, some a faster car would catch you or something, we got with about eight car lengths, 
it just disrupted the airflow over the wing so bad that it was like taking the wing off the car. And it would literally like Daytona in everything that I've ever driven, the banking on the oval, it's a straightaway. I mean, you can drive around there with one finger on the steering wheel and it's a piece of cake. Not in this car. This car would snap sideways if other cars got around you. So you had to be on your toes the entire time. In practice, I think we were, I think we were like three seconds off the pace. And so I go out to qualify and you know, there are times when you kind of got to just say, okay, we're going to try something here. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to get through that kink in the infield and the bus stop faster than ever, but we're only going to do it once or once. And I turned a lap time that was like two tenths off of the pole. So we started on the front row. Um, we knew we weren't fast enough to win, but we were knew we were, if we were smart, we could just put enough pressure on everybody else. And that's exactly what we did for 24 hours. We just, we stayed close enough to everybody else. And they kept thinking that we were holding back because I got this lucky lap in qualifying that was quick. Just buying and, your time. And, and they just kept thinking that we we're coming. So they kept pushing and pushing and they made a bunch of mistakes and we didn't. And then it came down to an hour and a half to go and we were leading. We had two cars in the in two team cars in, in the race and our teammates were, I think a lap down on us. I think I can't remember exactly, but about that and their brake lights stopped working and they got black flagged and within literally within five laps, my crew chief uh, engineer gets on the radio and say, our brake lights are out. And I'm thinking we're going to get black flag too. So we're going to have to come in and repair that. And um, the team manager, he and I had worked together for many years and we sort of had that really good connection between us. And we just, one of those, one of those people that you can have a conversation with and you can finish their sentences because you just know what they're thinking. And Mike and I had that kind of thing. And as I'm thinking about getting the black flag, I happen to look down at the dash and I see the rain light switch. And at that moment in time, as I'm coming into turn one, I think, what if I just turn the rain light on as I'm braking? And at that moment, Mike gets on the radio and says, there will be no more rain in this race, which was his little cue to me to use the rain light because we had an in-car camera and IMSA officials could look at what we were doing at any moment in time. Well, I drove the last hour and a half of the race, every brake zone, I just reach over, turn the rain light on, brake, downshift, go through the gears. And just as I turn into the corner, I reach over and turn the, the rain light off. So we drove the last hour and a half like that. And nobody said anything. <laughs> so it was one of those things where we won in a car that we shouldn't have won in, but uh, just we didn't make any mistakes. We executed better than everybody else. And that's, uh, um, I, I think, again, that's part of, I have friends that I've worked with and coached in rallying. And that's kind of their attitude of whatever it takes. You know, if we got to drive the car back on a stage five miles on with no tire on a wheel, you know, like whatever it takes, get the car back. And 
you know, that's sort of the approach to endurance racing at times. What I'm, what I'm hearing and like pulling out of all this is in adverse conditions, cards stacked against you, um, when it's raining, when things aren't going perfectly, that seems to be when you have more fun or that seems to be when you dig deeper or you find something that, um, I mean, you really enjoy driving in the rain it, in this car that was trying to kill you. Um, <laughs> it may, may not have been fun, but you took it as a challenge, like something to try to make the best of and how can we use that as our, to our advantage? How do you do that? Like I'm, I'm trying to find the question and that's all I'm coming up with right now, but you're finding these, these things where drivers tend to try to avoid these situations and you're trying to turn them into your favor. That's interesting. Cause I'm not sure anybody's ever said that, but as you're saying, I'm like, eh, kind of makes some sense. Like, cause I'm also like the year that I drove for BMW uh, and maybe kind of answering the question that's in there somewhere yeah, yeah. is I, I never like many racers. I never had any budget. So it was always trying to figure out how to gain an advantage that didn't involve spending a penny. And so there there's, that's part of it. I think is just, uh, uh, you know, I, I love that part of it. Um, figuring, figuring out how to get around things that, you know, the simple way was, well, go buy a new car. Um, yeah. yeah. Sorry, didn't have the budget to do that. So there, there's part of that. But when I drove for BMW, it, it was the first season of my l entire career, really my, really the only season of my racing career where I was in the best car and I had the best team, I had the best budget, I had everything. And, and which which car was this? Which series? That was the 1998, 1998. Um, and again, that was when there was, well, it was the predecessor. The year before they started calling it Grand Am, it was called the USRRC, US Road Racing Championship. So there was that series and there was the American Le Mans series. And we competed in both series. We had, uh, we had Velcro on our driving suits. So one weekend we'd have a USRC patch on our driving suit, and the next weekend we'd have a American Le Mans series patch on our driving suit. And uh, but the cars were the same, and we ran in both series. And um, you know, I was I was now with the best team, the best car, the best budget, everything. And you know, there was certainly a a feeling of okay, you got a chance, you better prove it, you better win the championship this year. And because you may never get this chance again, which turned out to be true. And uh, uh, but at the end of that year, you know, I, I won the championship and uh, I can just I remember telling my wife, like, this is not fun. I didn't enjoy it. It was it was like having a job. I'd show up at the track. I get in the car and drive the team, the engineers that kind of go, OK, you can go away now. and literally you know the drivers on the team there was myself and peter cunningham and mark simo boris said bill oberlin um mark duez uh 
there were times where we'd finish a practice session, we'd leave the track, we'd go bowling. And we'd come back and okay, get in the car, time to go out and qualify. And it was kind of a weird feeling. Like it was just, it didn't feel like I was contributing. And I think mm. that's, it was just, you know, the way I'm wired, I guess, is I, I like to feel like I'm really contributing. And, and I think that's why endurance racing, I enjoy that because I get to contribute more because it's not just my driving, but it's if I can feed back information to the team over the radio, they can make better, better strategic calls, all that kind of stuff. So at the, at the end of a season, you go, you know, I, I had, I had seasons where, you know, we finished second or fifth or whatever in the championship, but it was more satisfying because I knew that I made that result happen. The year one with BMW was like, did I really do that? Or was it just the team in the car and the budget? Yeah. So yeah, if, I, if you had finished mid-pack, then you could say, yeah, I did that. <laughs> like you had to drive it down to there, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, it, it, and I guess the other part of that is just, and it's something that I learned about myself a while ago, but I wish I had actually learned this when I was in school, but I'm a learning junkie. I, I love learning. And I th- because endurance racing, because every lap you're learning something. Why I love driving in the rain it, on a dry track, you know, you kind of narrow in, zoom in on the line, the grip, and, that, and then you try to maximize that last few hundredths or tenths there. But in the rain, the track changes every single lap. So you have to learn something new every single lap. And I, I just, I, I love that part of, I love that part of driving. I, I'm not going to say that driving on a dry track is boring, but compared to driving on a, on a rainy track, it's boring. I'm, I, I'm, you're singing to the choir here. I'm, uh, <laughs> My, I'm super excited because the, uh, the grid life touring cup that I race in, uh, they are getting rid of Hoosiers and they're getting rid of the Hoosier H2O. So now everybody gets to drive on street tires in the rain, just like I do. And, yes. And I'm actually, I'm, there's just no way, there's no way to balance the performance of an H2O versus a street tire in the wet. And so I'm very interested to see our wet weather performance next year. Quite excited. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, every, every track should have sprinklers built in. I, I agree with that. That I, would be amazing. I remember when you brought that up. I forget. I think it was on one of your podcasts, but I, we need to do that. That would be so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. But nobody's, uh, yeah, nobody's consulted with me and said, okay, we're going to do that. So I think we got to live with what we've got and enjoy it when we get, when we get some rain. So would be good uh, for my, spectators because they, they still get to spectate. They still get to stay dry, but you just get to see some really interesting driving. You know, think about the U.S. Grand Prix at Coda. We, all those spectators sitting in the sun and yeah. the track would have been wet and the F1 cars are just dancing around in the rain. It just it would have been better. I mean, it was a great race anyways, but anyways, yeah. Um, one of my favorite things recently, I endurance race small motorcycles, um, has been the transition period between light and dark 
because it, it changes the track visually, but also the temperature changes. Yeah. And so for that about half hour period of time, everything is in flux. And, you know, when it's light out, you're pretty constant. And when it's dark out, you're pretty constant. But that, that transition time is by far my favorite stint to take on a motorcycle because every lap is different and, and everybody's dealing with it differently. And, and that's, I've come to, to really love that period of time. Well, it's interesting how many drivers who are good in the dry and they're good in the, in the wet, but that transition in between, they suck at. It's, it's the same thing, right? It's just, it's, it's figuring out how to go fast in varying conditions. That's, um, you know, I, I, I recommend to people to practice by going to a local indoor go-kart track. And, you know, with the polished concrete, the things slip and slide and people go, well, you know, how does that relate to a real car? It, in a way it doesn't. But what does relate is you have to figure out how to make them go fast. And you know, if you go to your local indoor karting place, there's a 12 year old kid who is like a million miles an hour faster than you. Yes. And even if he does have the 200 pound weight advantage, um, you know, even if you added 200 pounds to his cart, he would still be faster than you. So your job is to figure out how to go as fast as him or her or her. So it's, it's that, that's the, the part that's so much fun about motorsport is figuring out how to do it better. So one of the things I did want to talk to you about is you've obviously gotten a bit of seat time behind uh, the wheel of many different kinds of race cars. And you also are super passionate about learning, not only learning, but also coaching other drivers and even coaching other coaches and the relationship between drivers and coaches and especially drivers who also coach is I always feel a bit of a tense one because it's often thought that if you do both that you're only coaching to help you get more seat time like it's an end to get you more seat time or it's an end to get you paid so that you can go back. You know, it's what you need to do to kind of get by. Um, but you seem to like genuinely not just enjoy it, but like coaching is your thing. And you love driving, don't don't get me wrong, but like coaching's your thing. But you started out driving. So when when was it and that transition period where you really kind of realized no, I'm I'm a coach who loves to drive, not just a driver who has to coach to get by. What what was that realization? What what was that period like for you? Uh, well, I, I think there may have been two steps there because I realized very very early on that I love the education, coaching, instructing, teaching piece as much as I, uh, as the driving part, but there was, I, I'm going to say up until early two thousands, uh, priority one was my driving career and given a choice between coaching on a weekend or going driving, I would take driving 
and to make it, you know, to, to, to be paid to drive race cars, uh, you have to be selfish, period. It's, it's all about me. And that's why, you know, that's why today there are many drivers that I raced against many years ago who I hated. Like they were the ugliest people. I, I didn't want to even say hello to them. Like they were just ugly people. And I was one of them. And now today, they're some of my best friends. Like they are the, some of the nicest people you'll ever meet. So I think when you're trying to make a career as a professional race driver, you have to be very selfish, very um, just focused on yourself and what it takes for you to do your job. And ends, ends justify the means. Yeah, exactly. And, and so there was a period of time, there was a transition piece, you know, for, and, and I would say that I, I would kind of squash the other part that I enjoyed, which was, I loved sharing what I learned and I would kind of downplay that and kind of squash it with my selfishness. And then there was a few years where for a variety of reasons, I got hired by people to coach and uh, the rides, you, you know, weren't coming along. And I, I would say the one thing that I, I, I definitely got tired of as a professional race driver was the looking for the next ride, looking for sponsorship or looking at, you know, selling myself to another team owner, that part of it, uh, I, I, I got very tired of it. And in around the early two thousands between uh, an opportunity to coach somebody who was quite enjoyable to, to, to coach and um, getting tired of chasing the next ride and not many rides sort of coming along, the transition started where uh, I started to flip to the point where, um, you know, to this day, uh, I would rather share with a million drivers than have be that selfish again. And, 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 and I think, you know, when people ask me, you know, when they're looking at a coach or something like that, what about that coach or whatever, uh, to me, what you really need to understand is what motivates the coach. And I know coaches who are motivated by, they just absolutely love sharing and they love the profession of coaching. They love understanding how to be a better coach. They, they're totally committed to that part of it. And then there are others who are, they still got that selfish piece going on. And I, and I please don't take me the wrong way there in that I think that that's a bad thing because I was there and it's, and it's, and it's part of the job description. You have to be focused on yourself. Yeah, I was, I was going to say that that might be a future podcast episode for us is why selfish isn't a bad word. Yeah. 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 It, it's, it's, and maybe there's a better word than selfish even, sure. but it's, it's focused on yourself and what's going to get the best result for you. And as a, no, uh, as a trying to make a career as a professional driver, that has to be your number one focus. And, uh, 
I probably even, I would say even struggled a little bit with, I enjoyed the sharing part even while I was trying to be a, a pro. And um, so there was a, you know, the first transition was simply recognizing that I loved that part of it. Mm -hmm. And then the second part was when I got to a point where uh, I really realized that I don't want to go and chase another ride. If one came along, I would jump at it because I still love, to this day, I still love driving cars. Um, doing a WRL, the 24-hour race at Sebring a few weeks ago, uh, man, that was so much fun. And I got out of the car in the middle of the night, called my wife and said, I don't think I'd been in the zone that much in years. Like it was just, it was magic time. Kind of to the point you're making, Seth, about, in that you know transition thing but this was like dark and sebring can get pretty dark at night and it was just it was so much fun i just absolutely loved that but when i got out of the car first thing i wanted to do was share what i learned with my co-drivers and so um I, I think that piece of what motivates somebody is the thing that separates some coaches from others so along those lines, I spend a lot of time at the cart track now. Um, and so I, inevitably I spend a lot of time around fathers coaching their kids. And I feel like there's a motivation. Like, I feel like their motivations for coaching their kids are not the same as when they bring other coaches in, if that makes sense. Say, say it out loud, Seth. It's very frustrating to watch dads coach their kids. Yeah. Um, and how do you, I mean, you have to deal with that all the time because people hire you to take their place as a coach, right? Because, because almost all kids are coached by their dads at some point. And how do you deal with that, um, that transition between dad coaching to regular coaching and the problems associated with that? It, it's, it can be challenging. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll say that's the, that's the first thing. Um, the, you know, I, I, I have been fortunate that when I've worked with young drivers, that uh, th th this wasn't the case when I was really, really getting initially really super focused on coaching. But uh, I guess I ended up with a reputation for being able to coach young kids. And so I got myself in a position where I could say to the parents, you know, you, you've, you've got to trust me. And, uh, and some of the work that I do sort of at least on the, especially on the sort of the mental game part of it is also helping the driver um, whether, deal with people around them, whether it's a team owner, whether it's a dad, whether it's a, a teammate, whatever. And, you know, you can't, you can't, there's no point in telling a 16 year old or a 60 year old, uh, Hey, if somebody says this to you, just ignore them. Well, <laughs> you know, that's like me saying, don't think about a pink elephant, right? Don't think about a pink elephant. Don't think you're thinking about a pink elephant. So it's, it's coming up with strategies to help them manage that. So that if dad comes along and says, you know, you got to get out there and win this one or whatever, um, you know, I'm tired of paying for your racing. If you don't, you know, put more effort into this, whatever. Those are some of the things that I've, <laughs> I've witnessed. And 
you know, it, you, you can't just tell a 16 year old, well, ignore that. But you need to give them a strategy of rather than thinking about a pink elephant right now, think about a blue elephant. And it's giving them those tools and triggers to get them switched the other way. So that's that's the first part is actually just um, helping the driver be able to manage their parents. And then, you know, again, at some point I got to where I could say to the parents, are you going to trust me to do the job? And if so, you need to give me the space to do that. And I found that, um, I don't know, not, not, at least 90% of the time that worked. And I also say that there were some parents that I fired. <laughs> uh, you know, I just, I, it was like, sorry, but this isn't working. Um, and, and I would say, I, I cannot think of a time when that happened, where the, the kid wanted it as much as the parents did. So I actually believe it was probably a, probably for the better for the kid as well. Um, okay. Yeah, that's my least favorite part of uh, of being around young kids carting is their relationship with their parents. I, I love watching them drive. I love watching their excitement. I love watching them interact with each other. There's nothing better than like five, eight-year-olds that come off track and all high-five each other and talk about that stuff. And then their helmets come off and they have to talk to their dads. Yeah. And... um. I find that very frustrating for me because it's not really my place to say anything. Um, so that's really why I was picking your brain about it is because I wanted to, 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 to sort of see what some of your experience was with that. Well, and, and you bring up a great point there is that there are times when I've been in that same situation at a track with karting kids or, and, or, you know, junior formula cars or something like that, where you just tell the kid, go play with your friends. And you see them over, you know, uh, over by the van in the parking lot and they're, uh, you know, they got little hot wheels and they're playing in the dirt and they're like, that's what they should be doing. So I think some of it is you need to model, model how you want the parents to act. And when they, when the kid gets out of the cart and they take their helmet off, you kind of got to almost step in and say, Hey, Johnny or Sally, um, you know, we got to go, we got to check over your cart. Um, it's good to kind of just go and relax after a session, just go and play and separate them from the parents and, uh, you know, model that part of it, I think for them, that's, that's, that's worked at times. And then when it doesn't work, yeah, you want to, <laughs> you want to do more than pull your hair out. You want to pull somebody else's hair out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, and that continues to be in our conversations and everything. Like if it's not fun, like, why are you doing it? Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's one reason why we like the one lap of America. Of course it's competitive. Of course, like we're, we're trying to beat each other, but like we, we want everybody to be at their best too. Um, and, we want to be able to get off track and share dumb stories and meet each other at strange places in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, I've, 
I've had many times uh, coming off track where I've gotten out of the car and I haven't even taken my head off, my helmet off, and I am like full stride trying to find another driver to give them a hug. Um, yeah, I've had. <laughs> I think it's more recently. I I did this our first season. Um, I'm I'm not a short guy, um, and I'm wear all black pretty much, and I'm like full stride to another driver who I'd been uh, battling around. And he's he's not as tall as I am, and he has his helmet off. I do not, and I'm. He had a look on his face that he was a little worried what I was going to be doing, and I just came up to him and like gave him a hug, and I'm like, dude, that was amazing. It, it, that reminds me of a uh, Daytona 24. Um, one year, I was driving the Ferrari 333 SP, which was just an awesome car, and. Uh, at the time in the Dyson car was Max Pappas. And he and I did three stints. And at that time, a stint in those cars was just under an hour. So we did almost three hours. And we were nose to tail for three hours straight. And after that stint, um, we had a spotter. And he said that on one of the, one of the laps, we passed 24 cars to the on two- one lap. And so it was that busy and we were just like slicing through the field, leading the race. And, and I'm, I remember getting out of the car, kind of taking my helmet off saying, you know, to the crew or whatever, you know, this and this. And then I just immediately walked down the back of the pit lane and there's Max coming the other way and we hugged each other. And it was like, man, that was why we do this. And, and yeah. this is two guys who are getting paid to win the Daytona 24 hour race in a stint in the middle of the race, we're hugging each other afterwards going, that was so much fun. <laughs> so it, it, if, if it ever stops being that fun, um, yeah, you need to consider why you're doing it. Well, I know Adam Jabay has invited you down, but if you, if I could ever get you down to a grid life weekend to, um, I, I really truly liken the grid life experience to um the one lap of america culture um it's a very similar thing um this past season they there was a car that um lost an engine in the middle of a race and they completely swapped the engine in (laughs) under two hours in time for the next race um we had uh another guy who killed a transmission and uh, in practice and was just basically going to hang it up for the day, uh, not qualified, just start at the back, whatever. And somebody was like, no, we can do this. And so seven people from wherever just came and wrenched and they changed the transmission in under 50 minutes, um, just to get them back out on track and people just come out of nowhere. And it's like, something seems wrong. You up? And, get to wrenching just to get people back on the track, which is very much to me a one lap thing. If you see a car with a bunch of stickers parked on the side of the road, you stop and you help because they're the same kind of stupid you are. And, (laughs) but you both are the same, like go help each other, get back out there. Well, I'm a huge fan of Adam and grid life, the grid life events. I've not been to a grid life event in the last, two or three years, I guess now, been yep. probably three years, something like that. So the stuff they've been doing in the last few years with the the new series and all that kind of stuff, I need to go and see that. So, um, 
Uh, We're doing actually, some East Coast events this year. They're um, really trying on some different tracks. I'm very hopeful that I will get to one because, um, so I've been doing some work with Garmin with their introducing their Garmin Catalyst and going to different events. Yep. And we were actually looking at me, I was going to try to get to the uh, Road America event, which was around the beginning of October, I think. Yep. And it just, as it, it didn't quite work out, but we've been talking about, uh, talking with Adam about me coming to one of those events. So um, I sure hope we, that we'll make that work early in 2022, I believe. So, Sweet. Um, yeah. and just, uh, you know, a lot of times people will, will say, well, you know, okay, that happens in grassroots racing or club racing or whatever. And it's a different world in pro racing. Actually, my experience is it's as much of that. And sometimes even more in pro racing, hmm. you, I, I think a lot of people would be shocked at, at the level of, of cooperation between competitors, uh, you know, once it, once they're on the track, it's fierce, right? But you want them on the track and you want to compete with them and you want to compete with them on relatively equal terms. Uh, and, and I got to say, so Stephen Thomas is the gentleman driver that I've been working with for the last three years. And there have been times where my mindset has been, okay, we got to look at ways to gain an advantage every way we possibly can to gain an advantage over the other team. And his attitude has always been, no, I want them on their best game. Give them our setup. Tell them everything that we're doing because I want to beat them when they're at their best. I don't want, I don't want to beat them and go, yeah, well, we just had a better setup. We had a better car. We had a better, you know, and it's like, wow, what a refreshing attitude in a way. And you, I think there's some balance there because you're always looking to gain an, an edge, sure. but not to the point of, you know, well, I want their car to break so we can beat them. Right. Yeah. That, and it almost sounds, that almost sounds like what we talked about earlier is with with you is he wants he wants the challenge like he wants to earn it he wants to know that if he won it was him that won not just because you guys had a different camber and different uh tire pressure set up on this one corner Um, yeah that that uh, i'm gonna say might cheapen the victory might cheapen the experience because, yeah, and I, I think you're right. There's a bit of a gray area between um, handicapping your opponent or wanting them to be handicapped versus doing everything you can to improve and be sure that your car and your team is ready. There's, there is, there's some sort of a line there, but I don't quite know where it is all the time. Yeah, and... Part of it, I think it depends a little bit on how you look at it is, am I looking at it strictly from when we're on the track, I'm going to outdrive you, in which case I want you to have, I I want us to be equal. Um, And I want to be better than you as a driver. But if you kind of step back and look at it as a big picture thing of, well, we're a team and we want our team to beat their team. Well, then you want to 
again, you don't want to, you don't, you don't want them to be disadvantaged, but you want to find ways for your team to gain advantage. Just like if I'm driving against you, I want to be, I want to find my advantage of how I get on a throttle or my line or whatever it is, right? I want to find something in my driving that gives me an advantage. Well, if you look at it from a, the big picture team thing, how, how can my team, how can my team get a better advantage here? So, um, well, and it was, it was fun to me being very quiet and coy about it as you were talking about, um, you know, working with tire pressures and in, in the GT GT three this year on the one lap. And, um, I've got a Becky and I'm not sure, you know, Becky, um, but she is, um, not only my partner, but she is my crew chief and tire expert and she is phenomenal at what she does and so that's been delightful we've got pages of notes and setups so we can we can pull pretty much any scenario and get it within certainly within two psi usually right right around within one the first chance Mm. and she is that's that's where she really shines for our team for sure well and kind of going back to the the camaraderie and that piece of one lap um well the first thing was you know yes we were running on michelin tires and as you know there was uh, bill bostick and uh, uh, his co-driver in the michelin car and yep. you know as the event went along i got to know them better and i would ask them more questions but i'd also go over and talk to dave ogburn from who's an engineer tire guy at, at goodyear Good and it, it, who's also an awesome guy and between the two of them, I was starting to figure this stuff out as we went along over the course of it. But the other thing I was thinking about is, uh, I can't remember which event was it. Was it at Eagles Canyon where the official timing and scoring gave the win to somebody and their data actually showed that they didn't do the time and they put their hand up and said, sorry, the official timing got it wrong. Yeah, I forget who that I want to s- Yes, but I that, remember that happening. I don't remember where or who that was. Yeah, it, but that's a, you know, it, it was a great example of sportsmanship too. Yeah, Here's somebody that they got the credit for the win and they could have just walked away, driven away and taken it and it would have helped them overall. But they didn't want to do it. They didn't want a cheap win. Yep. They put their hand up and said, look, our data shows that we did this lap time and that's what we should be now. I think I put him second or third or something like that in that event. So um, I thought that was a that was that was a, a fantastic example of the event, how it, how it shaped up to be him. What my experience of the event was, and the the trophy that really truly, I mean the the overall winner. People people know who the overall winner is by the time you know we get to the last event generally. Um, but the the trophy that everybody really sticks around and waits for is the sportsmanship trophy to see like who really went above and beyond and that's voted on basically by your fellow drivers fellow crew um, and we have similar weekend things that we do um, for grid life where every weekend we feed Adam names and deeds that have been done and you know, the podium's very important for some people, and um, but the person who gets the sportsmanship of the weekend 
award, their next entry fee is free. And that's that's something we're really trying to push is not just victory, but how you are in the paddock. The culture, it's not it's not who makes the podium that makes racing. It's the culture and the retention rate. Like who wants to keep coming here to yeah. compete with this group? That's really what um, I think what, the again, the culture and the people that we keep talking about. That's that's the thing. As you're so, I, I think that's fantastic, and I think it's a great way of doing it. Is making you know, if you win the sportsmanship thing, you get a free entry. I, I love that. But to, as you were saying that, and you're saying that, you know, feeding names and whatever to Adam, and it's, somebody's also feeding Adam like twenty dollar bills, and that's why Adam's got this nice new motorhome. And uh, oh yeah, yeah, he paid yeah. All, he paid all a ten grand for that thing. Yeah, <laughs> I God, yeah, yeah. That yeah, yeah. Um, well, Ross, where can people follow you, find out more about, uh, the kinds of things that you do? Speedsecrets.com. Uh, and you know, all the usual social media kind of stuff, but, uh, uh, yeah, speedsecrets.com. And I've, I've just recently launched, a, 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 a separate site for sim racers. I call sim racer Academy. So it's simraceracademy.com. And, uh, you know, I got to say that the, the whole sim racing thing. Uh, I've used simulators for 20 years um, for coaching and having some fun and doing some practice and doing some sim racing and stuff like that. But um, uh, I think the whole sim racing world is only going to grow. And I think it's really interesting. And, and I don't know if you've watched some of the sim racing uh, sim races on YouTube where they have full on announcers and oh, like, yeah. it's hard to tell the difference between a real and a, a sim race. So um, it, it's been really fun and um, it's yeah, fun, fun building that. And uh, the, the, the hardcore sim racers that have been around, they're no different than us. Um, so it, it's been fun. So anyways, yeah, speedsecrets.com is the, where you can sim sim racers can just drive without pants on that's uh that's the big advantage they have i think <laughs> that's an image i didn't want <laughs> you're you're welcome <laughs> well yeah. ross thank you for uh thanks for your time thanks for coming on and talking with us thank you it's been fun well for the three of us here i'm scott i'm seth and i'm fernando alonso and we are track walking have a good night <laughs>